In 1825, before the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, a 25-year-old black man named Andrew Williams bought land in the middle of Manhattan. The area was countryside at the time and offered a reprieve from the overcrowded and often dangerous city life of Lower Manhattan. Just two years later, when an end to slavery was announced, more black families followed Williams to the island's lush countryside. And thus, Seneca Village was born, a community ahead of its time, and one that time has almost forgot. Almost. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. I'd like to start this episode off by saying that the true history of Seneca Village is still being pieced together, mainly due to many attempts to eradicate it completely. We know now that the village offered black families an opportunity to live free, free of the discrimination and disease growing in the overcrowded downtown areas. Though the emancipation was enacted in 1827, slavery still existed in New York until 1841. A reminder, this is all pre-Civil War, so slavery is still a normal practice throughout much of the country. Though the emancipation was enacted in 27, news of it did not reach all of the areas of the country until years later, like 1862, also known as June 19th or Juneteenth. At the time, there were very few people who would sell their land to black buyers, but the 200 lots sold by John and Elizabeth Whitehead were mostly purchased by black families contradicting what many knew about the history of the park's residents, that being that they were merely squatters and tramps, as told of them by local newspapers. Cynthia Copeland, president of the Institute for the Exploration of Seneca Village History, told CBS News correspondents that, quote, Seneca Village was a place of opportunity, end quote. She and many others have spent decades trying to uncover the full story of what is now Central Park, including an archaeological dig that uncovered many artifacts from Seneca Village homes and evidence of the structures, gardens, livestock, and burial grounds that once were there. Copeland also speculates that Seneca Village was part of the Underground Railroad. Though it has yet to be confirmed, she believes it is highly probable that the site acted as a safe haven for slaves seeking freedom. The village was home to the largest number of African-American property owners in New York before the Civil War. And at this time, with land ownership came the right to vote. But of course, this was still only limited to men. And they had to own their own property and reside in New York for at least three years before they were even eligible. And then they had to own at least $250 worth of land. Meaning the three lots that Andrew Williams bought back in 1825 still wouldn't have allotted him the right to vote as his whole property was only valued at $150. And of the 100 black New Yorkers who were eligible to vote in 1845, 10 of them lived in Seneca Village. Another thing that made this village unique, in contrast to its backdrop, was the fact that the community was integrated. Two-thirds of the community were black families. The other third was made up of Irish and German immigrants. They attended church, went to school together. There's even proof of interracial families. Almost all of the children in the village were enrolled in school, and most of the residents were employed in service or labor jobs. 
It was a thriving middle-class neighborhood that valued education and religion. Most of the homes were two-story brick homes, and with other areas designated as shanties or shanty towns, which usually acted as temporary housing for fleeing families. The AME Zion Church was among the first purchasers in the area, buying up six lots in the exact same year as Andrew Williams. It was one of three churches in the town. The village thrived for 32 years, growing to a population of nearly 300 in just a short time. But in 1853, the dream came to an end when the residents of Seneca Village were evicted from their homes, all because of a smear campaign that led the public to believe Seneca Village was a shantytown of thieves and vagabonds. The papers even referred to it with racial slurs, calling it N-word town, and spread pictures of run-down shacks covered in trash. New York City elites decided at the same time, coincidentally, that they needed a park to rival the ones seen in countries all over Europe. And the natural countryside in the middle of Manhattan offered the perfect location. During this time, New York was suffering from economic depression. Land was becoming hard to come by. Nonetheless, in 1853, city officials utilized eminent domain, a law allowing a government to take private land for public use, and just like that, the 300 residents of Seneca Village were removed, along with 1,300 other residents in surrounding areas. Landowners are compensated when their land is taken through eminent domain, but many of the properties were severely undervalued, and therefore the owner was underpaid. The state acquired 775 acres of land in Manhattan, from 59th to 106th streets, in between 5th and 8th avenues. The creation of Central Park was marked as the U.S.'s first major landscape public park. Imagine that. A monument to prominent Seneca Village family, Albro and Mary Joseph Lyons, is just now being planned for an outdoor exhibit by the Central Park Conservancy and regular tours are telling the story of Seneca Village. But many still wonder, where did all those people go? Carl Jones, a Manhattan historian, has spent thousands of hours sitting down with families and poring over public records to locate any remaining descendants of the original Seneca Village residents. Through social media, he was able to locate the great, great, great grandson of Andrew Williams, the very first resident, a man named <laughs> Andrew Thomas Williams IV. Seriously. Andrew said, It almost felt like I found a treasure. He and his wife recently took the Seneca Village tour in Central Park and stunned the tour guide when she mentioned that no descendants have been found. <laughs> I can just imagine them. Uh, excuse me. You got one right here. My great-grandfather had a music school where he taught music. And it made the whole Andrew Thomas Williams line so much better because I really truly now get that connection. It's not just a name. It gave me a sense of being and a sense of pride. So I walk a little taller and I feel a lot stronger. I remember uh, the tour guide saying, we haven't been able to locate any descendants. <laughs> and so then I said, descendants right here. <laughs> Oh, they started clapping, they was excited. They were like, wow, and yeah. all we can do is honor the past. And nothing covered can ever get healed. There are others out there. Yeah, the story just has to be put out. And I think uh, 
then we'll learn a whole lot more than what we, the little that we know now. Exactly. And knowing the whole story, man, wow. That, that's gotta be amazing when that comes out. There you go guys there is the almost lost story of seneca village you know what i wouldn't call it almost lost let's call it newly found mm, okay right okay yeah because sure. it seems like this stuff is just now kind of getting moving like they're mm -hmm. just now doing the tours they're just now telling people about this insane history mm -hmm. of this hidden village where people were just pushed out like there's so many i, I doubt there is a state in our Beautiful United States that is without a story similar to this. Oh, North absolutely. Carolina has plenty. Um, in Wilmington, North Carolina, I did a strange shorts on this. It's available on Patreon um, about the uh, Wilmington mm -hmm. coup d'etat mm -hmm. where they basically, the government came in and violently removed black families yeah. and businesses out they of the town of Wilmington because the whole t area was becoming too powerful. That's mm -hmm. that's basically it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yep. they were they were um, legally gaining the right to vote because mm -hmm. of their land owning and, and their business owning wealth. and their building. Yes, yeah. and they were building generational wealth. And uh, yeah, they couldn't stand for that. And that's it's heartbreaking. And every chance I get to highlight one of these stories, I will. Yeah, I feel like so many people feel like that they, you know, you know, we're so far from it. Like it's not, it doesn't include us. It's like, but it's still, it's still good to know. Mm -hmm. It's still oh, real yeah, good absolutely. to know, to heal, and to move forward, and to understand. Mm -hmm. You know, yep. like, um, like the and like Andrew and his wife said, uh, what's her name, Mar Mariah, right? Mariah, yeah. Like Andrew and Mariah said, having this stuff out in the open knowing this stuff, then you can begin to heal. You can begin to talk through. You can begin to make actual progress. Mm -hmm. And yeah. hopefully more, more and more stories like this will come out. Mm -hmm. You know, now that everyone has an opportunity to share a story, it's like the amazing, incredible stories rise to the top somehow. People find them, you know, because yeah. everyone has a cell phone in their hand. You, I mean, there's people every day on, even on TikTok, I mean, God forbid, I, you know, I don't love TikTok, <laughs> but there are people on TikTok who are telling their life stories and filming mm -hmm. them and whatnot and documenting these things, these these different processes in their life. I'm not going to lie. I watched a series of videos of a guy who was in a property dispute with a neighbor. Oh my and she was saying <laughs> that she owned half of his property and he couldn't have all this stuff on it and whatever. And he had the land surveyed and whatever. Mm -hmm. And he was like documenting it. And it's just, that's interesting. Yeah. Now it's so, it's so amazing that we have that now. Yeah. And then also these, these people who have stories to tell our, our grandparents, you know, our elders, our seniors, 
in our communities now, if they have a story to tell, now they can record it so easily. Mm -hmm. Just turn on your phone yep. and sit down in your room on your bed and just talk into it yep. and document that story forever. And then it's easy to tie families into yes. families. And, and then as that story gains popularity, other people see it and they're like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I was there too. I yeah. remember that. Or, exactly. you know, my I remember my grandfather telling me about this or that. Mm -hmm. And history can be uncovered, yeah. you know, where it's like we're sweeping away a little bit at a time. Yep. We are. It, it's hard to uncover something that that you know so much that wasn't documented though. I think right. that's why that's why we're having such a hard time really finding the truth about this. Like even uh, proving that the town or the village was a, a location for the underground railroad. Like they're having problems proving it, but it's like there's no way it wasn't. Right. Yeah. You know, makes perfect sense. The um the actually the couple that they're building the monument for the lions uh, couple right they had built a boarding home and they would board sail uh black sailors at the time there oh okay coming in out, out you know into manhattan mm -hmm. so if they came in with the navy and they needed a place to stay they would board them there and it was speculated that that place was used to help fleeing slaves also so right. It's like, and of course, it's a perfect like, cover. Exactly. Right. Like perfect they cover. Been you could come in, you could even give these slaves like a Navy uniform, you mm -hmm. know, like some exactly. basic clothes mm -hmm. and just let them stay. And I mean, yep. that's a great cover right there. Yeah. So it's like, it, it absolutely right was, but good people to idolize of, then good people to yeah, immortalize rather. Exactly. But because right. of the lack of, you know, record keeping that they were, able to do and you know they just have to pass down everything through story and that's why it's so important to tell these stories mm -hmm. because if we don't uncover them somehow through archaeological digs and things like that like everybody doesn't have that luxury right so they just have to keep passing them down through generations absolutely mm -hmm. that's like i say you know now people have every opportunity to tell their story mm -hmm. and to get things out there and hopefully yeah. more of these things will be preserved. Yeah. All right. Well, there's our take on it, guys. Uh, let's tune in with Lauren. And let's see what he thinks in this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. Seneca Village. You now know it as Central Park. But it was formerly a village owned by mainly uh, early black Americans and also Italian immigrants um, who purchased land what is now prime real estate, obviously Central Park, it, it got a, kind of got snatched up by the city, unfortunately, but it was purchased. It was put up for sale back in 1825 and lots were sold for as low as $125. Andrew Williams, a 25 year old African-American shoe shiner, bought the first three lots in upper Manhattan for $125. What an investment that should have been and should have made the Williams family extraordinarily wealthy it should have been generational wealth had the city of new york not come in and enacted imminent domain over them 30 years later um and taken it away basically stolen it to create central park and i'm not saying central park isn't you know 
something great for New York City. It's a staple, you know, everybody that goes to New York City has got to go visit Central Park and it's the lungs of New York City, as they call it, you know, fresh air created by all those trees and somewhere for people to escape and get into nature. That's all great and, and dandy. But the fact that they came in and just snatched these land, this land and basically um, belittled the people that started families and started life there. They had churches, they had community that was integrated much more so than lower Manhattan. Um, you know, there was, there's people all, of all different races that were just trying to create a community and get out of lower Manhattan, which was extremely dangerous at that time. Um, and they were doing exactly what I would have done, you know, buying land and getting away from the city a little bit and getting some, some of your own space. And it also allowed, um, these, these, uh, black Americans to vote as well. Cause you couldn't vote at that time if you were black, if you didn't own land. Um, so, you know, they were, they were doing something great and the city came in as they do, um, as government does came in, snatched the land from them, said that they were squatters, basically, even though they were rightful landowners had purchased the land and were doing great things. There's since been, I think it was 2011. Um, they've had people go in and start digging up artifacts from Seneca village. And it showed that they were, they were living not in squalor. They were living quite well. And in fact, the dishes and the different, uh, artifacts they found toothbrushes and things like that showed that they were living quite well. And, um, that basically the city just tried to say that they were, uh, you know, living in squalor, that they were squatters and whatnot. And that the city had to oust them to create this park, which is all whatever this happens from time to time. Someone, you know, the city deems this area, this needs to now be a park or an airport or whatever. Um, and when eminent domain is declared, the government is supposed to provide just compensation to the property owners. Uh, according to the fifth amendment, which it does not sound like what happened here with Seneca village. It sounds like they basically just took, just said, declared, like you must get out of your own property by this date. Um, and did not give them any compensation, which is just shocking to think what that land would be worth, you know, uh, especially now, but just imagine had the, you know, those families held on to that land and gotten paid just justly for that, they would have gotten, like I said, generational wealth. That is, you know, about as good of uh, real estate as you could imagine, upper Manhattan in New York City. I mean, come on. And I think the worst part is that the, you know, the media, the newspapers at the time demonized those people and acted like they were ruining that land and, and covered it up. And it, you know, people didn't know, still, most people don't know this history of Central Park and that it was a village of good people that were all blending together and, and going to church and they had schools for, for black students, which there wasn't in lower Manhattan. So this was really a, a much better alternative for these people. And they just, you know, the city just came in, took it, acted like, you know, it was theirs to begin with. And, you know, they, they, these people had no right to do it, even though they rightfully purchased it with their hard-earned money. I imagine it would have taken a shoemaker, you know, a, a black shoemaker in New York City at, at the time in those days in 1820s, a long time, I mean, $125 is nothing now, but that must've taken them a long time to save that money to buy that plot of land. And then the city just came in and took it. And to think what that investment for them would have been worth to their families. It's just, it's so sad. At least now the city has recognized what they did. And I mean, it's a small consolation, but there are, you know, um, murals and things like that in the area where Seneca village was in central park now, and they've been digging up artifacts and stuff. It's, it's, you know, at least come to light what the city did to those people. Um, and maybe some restitution should be paid to their families. I don't know. It's really sad what happens and what has happened in the past. Humans are just terrible to each other. That's, that's one thing we just come to learn. Um, 
and uh, people take advantage of each other. Business business people are some of the worst at times where they just don't care whatever it means to um, help them financially. They will completely screw over other people, not thinking that they're their common man and, you know, thinking what it, what it would be like to be those people. Uh, so, yeah, frustrating, interesting to learn about. Um, thank you for featuring this case, Michael. It was a fascinating case that I was not, I was not aware of Seneca Village, so I'm glad you brought it to light, and I'm sure some of the listeners now are aware that didn't know as well. So, very interesting. Thanks. Uh, thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. Very nicely put, Lauren. Very nicely put. Couldn't have summed it up any better myself. All right, guys. Well, there you have it. Like we said, I hope you enjoyed this uh, this telling of Seneca Village, or yeah, now known as Central Park. So if you go and uh, poke around in New York City and you happen to visit Central Park, man, you look at it a little different now, right? It's crazy. History. But all right, guys, I won't keep you long. If you like what we do here at True Crime Guys Productions, please consider checking out patreon.com slash truecrimeguys, where for just five bucks a month, you can get access to early releases of these Strange and Unexplained episodes on Thursdays, and also access to strange shorts that I do with my friend Andy, which we release every fourth episode here on the free platform. We release every Monday a new Strange Shorts, as well as access to... Uh, True Crime Guys exclusive content as well like the once a month Patreon exclusive and just the banter between me and Lauren where we answer listener questions, take suggestions and sometimes, you know, just shoot the shit and take a few side tangents you know, it's just the banter, we're not allowed to stay on topic but again, that's patreon.com slash truecrimeguys um, but of course if you're listening on the free platforms we appreciate you very, very much and if you have the option to review or rate the podcast, whether you're listening on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever it is, that helps the show, and we appreciate that very much. And if you actually leave a written review, we'll give you a shout on the show. All right? Uh, links to everything True Crime Guys Productions right below the description of this episode, as well as sources, um, videos, all kinds of cool stuff. All right? We'll see you guys next week with another strange and unexplained case. But until then, be strange, okay? Just don't be strangers. You hush your mouth, boy.